You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Welcome back to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast in the whole world that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by our other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. It's getting hot here in Cincinnati, by the way, everybody. And I'm one who likes to go on walks, okay? I walk every day and I've mastered the art of walking while reading. Have you guys ever tried that before? No, dude. Heck no. Dude, it's it's something of a skill I've picked up over the past decade and I'm quite good at it. As long as I stick to the sidewalks, I'm generally okay. But today I was clobbered by a tree today. <laughs> okay. Or I guess I should say I, I you walked into a tree. Dang, dude. That's hardcore. I clobbered myself. It was a branch hanging over the sidewalk but I didn't see it. And it was probably really funny to other people who saw it, but uh, but yeah, right in the face, knocked my headphones off. And oh yeah, I should say that I listen to music too while I do it. So I not only take away my ability to to see because I'm reading stuff, but you know, to hear as well, yeah. I I can't hear. And so, uh, you know, it's all on my nose. Next week's episode will be discussed between zach and i while cliff is recovering in the hospital <laughs> yeah uh, whatever injury he sustains <laughs> yeah. well, now that it's nice out dude i'm i i'm committed to, to doing this every day because yeah it's it's normally something i love to do i love you know you kind of it's kind of two birds one stone right you get a good walk yeah. in and uh but anyway so yeah so but what we read today in sabella's book was amazing i guess you could say i got clobbered by something else today Oh, nice. And that was uh, Jeremy Sabella's biographical snapshot of Niebuhr's life in the Cold War era. Um, And this is the Niebuhr I freaking love. I got into Niebuhr basically on the ground, kind of with moral man and moral society, just like everybody else. And uh, Interpretation of Christian Ethics. I think think Interpretation of Christian Ethics was the very first book I read cover to cover by Niebuhr. But this Cold War era, post-World War II era Niebuhr, this is the Niebuhr I love. He's already... Um, had his pastoral and political breakthrough in the in the 20s and early 30s. He's already worked through his theology in the 30s, culminating in his tome, Nature and Destiny of Man, his magnum opus. But now he returns to politics with a vengeance. He returns to politics with a freaking sledgehammer. Um, he's going to be dealing with uh, the anti-Semitism and the state of Israel issue. He's going to be dealing with nukes and the new kind of, you know, new and frightening world that nukes have left us in. Still today, we're still feeling the effects of that. And he's going to be dealing with political extremes in the post-war era um, that he's going to have to kind of navigate. And he's going to do all of this by mapping out his own political philosophy, which is known as Christian realism. So let's start there, Christian realism. And perhaps before we go there, maybe we should discuss what realism is or what Sabella here is calling ultra realism. So anybody out there, anybody at all, Aaron or Zach, want to break down any of this? Let's start with realism. What is realism? 
Well, um, so Bella brings this sort of like way of defining realism in opposition to what Niebuhr develops later on as Christian realism. And Sibelic says that Niebuhr is like the, the architect or the main advocate for Christian realism at the time that he comes to the scene. Um, but ultra-realism, uh, as what sometimes realism is called, it's just the belief that self-interest is what promotes and is at play within individual relationships and political relationships. And that as countries grow in size, um, and, and, you know, self-interest multiplies, this will lead to some sort of balancing of power. And there's a pretty big distinction here because Sabella says that Christian realists think that self-interest should um, define our political activities. Um, and if you just take a quick look on iep.utm.edu, which is like big philosophy journal, um, they talk about political, political realism as a theory that really begins in Thucydides' Peloponnesian War, where um, the sort of theories put down that might equals right. Mm. Yeah, good. So realism is operating under the assumption that self-interest trumps everything. Like exactly, you, yeah. you have. We all have to operate as though selfishness is at the heart of every individual. And you could probably trace uh, political realism back to Machiavelli. Just this idea that what is what is underpinning human nature is our own will to get what we want and what we need. And there's often no clear line between the two, uh, between what we want and what we need. Self-interest guides all. And once you take that concept and balloon it to everybody else, then all of a sudden you have kind of a fixed point. You could build everything off of, okay, everybody wants this, everybody wants that. (laughs) And you can see the way that Putin's interests are driving him over here. You can see the way that Biden's interests are driving him in the United States over here. Uh, And from this, we can kind of come up with a predictable model for the way the world events will Mm -hmm. unfold a little bit. And it will create this kind of equilibrium between parties. It should. And we won't get ahead of ourselves with nukes too much here, but this view is going to fit like hand into a glove when we get into the nuclear deterrent models uh, of the future of, okay, if these nations have nukes, everybody's operating under their own self-interest. Nobody wants to get blown to bits. And so we kind of have the seeds here of the doctrine of mutually assured destruction. Uh, But it begins with kind of this really cold, almost cynical view of everybody is looking out for themselves. Uh, And an example of somebody who's violated this, I will give is Neville Chamberlain. Okay, so this is the end of the 30s and Chamberlain gets off the plane. I mean, there's famous pictures of this and he's kind of waving this treaty saying Hitler has agreed. You know, he's not going to attack us. He's going to stop where he is. And, he's, you know, and so he Chamberlain had this rosy picture of, you know, that, you know, these people on the world stage are capable of acting in good faith, you know, and without a deterrent of some kind. And so just based upon Hitler's word, never Chamber- Neville Chamberlain comes back thinking, oh, we're good now, you know? This is and- a really good point because I think it brings in to one distinction we should probably make and then another point that Sabella makes we could bring up. That the first thing I think we should remind ourselves, and this is coming from someone who has not done a lot of research on realism as a political philosophy 
but just serves my intuition that political realism takes multiple forms from just an analysis of politics, but it rises up in the 19th century from social Darwinianism as well. Mm-hmm. So there's like a there's an emphasis on the biological feature of like people need these things, but it's not self-evident that people you come across every day will be thinking that self-interest motivates or guides their actions, right? Right. They don't really believe that. Even if you take it that they believe in the social Darwinian program, they might believe that they're pretty good people. But this comes into a second point that Sabella brings up that I think is implied, at least in this chapter, um, as opposed to the Christian realists, the ultra-realists, the, the political realists, are sort of self-deceived because yeah. if you just leave self-interest as the motivating factor, you leave out the fact that self-interest can be a deception of what is actually in your interest. You can perceive what is in your interest, like Neville Chamberlain, like we got Hitler to sign this agreement, but you know the reality is Hitler uh, invades the Rhineland and you know Czechoslovakia yeah. and then conquers that and annexes you know all that area afterwards so yeah and and there's this quote i really want to read because uh from sabella that just really captures that i was thinking that same exact thing that you're that just making that important distinction uh he says on page uh 62 for the christian realists the overwhelming tendency among human beings to act in their perceived self-interest is one but not the only effect of sin sin also distorts how human beings perceive themselves in relation to others Mm-hmm. This introduces a gap between what people perceive to be their interest and what is actually in their interest, thereby hampering their ability to gauge self-interest accurately. Human beings are driven by self-interest, but are bad at determining what their self-interest is. Yeah. And it's like, that is such a, like a, such a great way to put it, like such a great <laughs> way to like grab this, this really bizarre aspect of human experience, right? That, that is so descriptive of like what I engage in like even just in like a pastoral role, like in how people relate to each other, like they think they're acting in their self-interest and, but they are not like they're, they're actually doing something that is like so contrary to like what's actually in their best interest. And they think they're doing the right thing though. They think they're headed in the right direction. They think they're trying to accomplish the goals. And it's like, no, 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 no. I can see from like this 10,000 foot view, you're heading towards this crater, you know, kind of like you just talked about with the, uh, the, the peace accords or whatever it was that they, they thought they had Hitler contained. And then all of a sudden, boom, he invades the Rhineland anyways. Yeah. Well, I think it's important at this point to help our listeners along in this. So we, we discussed uh, uh, political realism, which is the assumption that everybody's acting within their own self-interest and you have to expect that. And it actually can create this kind of equilibrium, something that Neville Chamberlain was too kind of, myopic he was only kind of looking to the interests of britain and wasn't and he and he was also kind of uh wooed by hitler a little bit into you know accepting this good faith uh uh treaty that that wasn't really there ever like of all people in history to doubt the motives the good faith motives you should probably doubt hitler has good motives here He's not going to sign anything uh, or I'm sorry, he's not going to really agree with anything that he signs. That's just a piece of paper to him. The only thing that he real that really motivates him is his own self-interest. So that's political realism where you guys are heading now is Christian realism. And And it's different in two ways. One thing that Zach just mentioned, and I'll affirm it, is it's not simply that nations operate 
purely out of self-interest, but they're oftentimes tainted by sin as they're doing it. Nations, especially those governed by authoritarians, but not only authoritarian nations, sometimes don't know what's in their nation's best interest. Uh, But sin can taint their own estimations about themselves and their adversaries and even their goals. Putin is a great example of this. We talked, man, this is one of our first episodes. We talked about what are what can we rely on when it comes to Putin's int- intentions? And we came in, I remember us having this discussion, Zach. I don't know if you remember this. We came in and Zach was saying, we can't trust anything Putin does, you know? Uh, and I agree with that. Like we, we need to distrust his own motives. Uh, but there's another level here where we have to also suspect that he doesn't really understand his, uh, his own country's self-interest to a degree that he has got himself into a bind in Ukraine. And he had kind of this overinflated sense that Russia could just sweep in, kind of like Bush in Iraq. We could just sweep in, in a couple of weeks, mission accomplished, and we can all keep on going. But sin had distorted, pride had distorted his own kind of view of his own nation to the point that left him vulnerable to an incredible amount of of uh, foolish moves, you know, that he's going to make upon himself. So that, so that's a great, uh, uh, that's a great point, but there's another one. And I want to see what you guys say about this. Christian realism also affirms that nations can be good. Okay. So like while nations must assume the self-interest and taint of sin and others, it must also be not so cynical to presuppose that, you know, that justice, faith, hope, and love are totally impossible on the world stage. What do you guys think about that? I mean, I think that's a good thing. It's a, a needed corrective, you know, it, because otherwise there's this weird whataboutism that just arises. Like people are constantly like, well, what about this when you did this, right? That's what Russia is doing to the United States over and over again. Right. Right now, is they're like, well, what about all your abuses? What about about when you invaded Iraq? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, they go down the list and you can go through and parse all of the, you know, mistakes the United States has made and et cetera and et cetera. But I have like very little I have I have very little problem saying that I think the United States is on the right side of history right now on this issue of like, for instance, Russia invading Ukraine. I think we're on the right side of history in terms of trying to help Ukraine keep Russia out. Um, I think that that's the the right thing to do to to support Ukraine in the situation. Is it a pure thing? Is it perfectly pure? No. But I think that uh, if we want to talk about who's who's pursuing uh, pursuing love and justice and peace in the situation. And the problem becomes, I think you become so stagnated and unable and, and weak when you don't say, hey, look, there is a good actor in this situation. Yeah, it's otherwise you're just like, oh, it's just competing imperialisms. And it's like, okay, great. But also like, what kind of world do we want, right? Do we want a world that where democracy is actually like a real democracy? Or do we think that, you know, Russia is going to really, do we really think that Russia is going to accomplish, has any chance of accomplishing true justice uh, like we would like to see, like a true democracy? Yeah. Um, the end no. game is just Ukraine. The end game in their mind is just Ukraine getting swallowed up and, to like the old Soviet or, you know, uh, uh, Eastern Bloc, um, I, I don't know, like Cold War era uh, empire or something like that. And that's not good. <laughs> you know, that's definitely not good. Uh, I don't think so, we, we, we need to be able to say that. Yeah. 
you know, we need to be able to say, like, I think Christian realism keeps that in mind that like, hey, like people are pursuing the self-interest. That is a pivotal central part. And we can't be naive so as to believe that that's not going on. But we have to also be willing to say uh, someone's on the right side of history. Someone's on the wrong side of history. And otherwise, uh, I think we just get stuck. I mean, I think that's the easiest way to put it. Yeah, excellent point, Zach. There's uh, starting in with kind of this whataboutism um, is already putting on display this bad faith. And so that that already kind of shows the failures of a straight or ultra political realism. Uh, the fact that we can't operate as though there is no such thing as justice, love, uh, peace, uh, you know, faith or hope or any, any of these things, but they actually have to be kind of governing features of the way that we act or the whataboutism will just lead us into nowhere, will actually create um, distrust. And that's never a good thing, you know, um, on a world stage or in our own political life. What do you think, Aaron? Well, I think there's a couple of things that I want to bring up here. Um, the question whether America is on the right side of history. I think we need to set the question this way and just to talk about how Niebuhr talks about democracies. I thought about quibbling over that language so, a little bit with Zach, but I decided to let it go. Well, I want to quibble over it anyway. <laughs> it's um, a generalization. I'll say that for well, I, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean, Zach. Um, so first of all, democracy itself is not an inherently good political tool right and Niebuhr does talk about this in the children of light and children of darkness mm. the worst of all possible solutions to yeah. more crisis so it's value neutral but it's the best at mitigating differences and i think he says that achieving the the greatest amount of justice for people right um for for, for people with differencing opinion differencing communities right mm -hmm. but it within that Niebuhr has to have some form of idea of self-critique mm -hmm. because, you know, in order to maintain principles of love, justice, and hope, it's not as if these institutions are pre are programmed with these sort of qualities already there mm -hmm. to just dispense like a, 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 a drink machine or a snack machine, snack vendor, you need to have that sort of critique where you're always criticizing yourself, which we'll talk about later. Uh, he and the owner of the New York Times, uh, sorry, the Times Magazine, he and, he and the, him got into it a bit uh, between uh, self-critique um, and self-confidence. But I was really fascinated because I was reading yesterday in uh, Philip Goodchild's Faith and Credit, this, he gave a quite a, a great exposition on the parable where Jesus in the gospels gives this parable about a king forgiving the debts of one of his uh, servants. Mm -hmm. And then the servant turns around and then instead of forgiving he, the person who owed him money was very violent and requested his money back. And then the king, you know, mm -hmm. reclaimed those debts and tortured this guy for indentured. In but it's really funny because Philip makes the point that the king himself, although telling him to forgive your brother 70 times seven, does not practice that method. The hmm. king himself engages in, engages in unforgiving practice, right? And yeah. so in democracy, you have like love, but it's going to be extremely imperfect. You have faith, yeah. but you're, but by virtue of 
being unconfident of your faith, you're being unfaithful and you're lacking faith. So it is a very big tension between these things. It's not as if these things are always present or always going to be present in society. Um, does that make any sense? But, there, to you guys? but there's, but there's always, yeah, totally. But it, there's always the opportunity to change. Um, yeah. There's always a freedom there, and we there's always an ability to create these checks on a democracy. Yeah, I, I think what gets lost a lot of times because we are very quick on here to say that you know something like democracy is the best terrible thing we have. But the whole reason that we say that is because the way the democracy then can become hardened and then exalted into something that could justify something like nation building or, or empire. Um, or, the nuclear idea war. That, or nuclear war. Yeah. It, it, it can like, it, Niebuhr's all about showing us, give us anything and we'll find a way to sin with it. You know, <laughs> give us, yeah. give us uh, a democracy that, you know, raises the freedom of every human being um, and we will find a way to pervert that into something foolish and harmful to other people. But and so if you look at kind of the, the Bush doctrine or even like the Clinton doctrine, um, you could even see seeds of this in the Obama doctrine and, and even even the Trump doctrine. I mean, Trump was isolationist, so he was very much opposite. But there are certain things about that, uh, about what he's doing there that kind of has an imperial flavor to it. But all of the like all these kind of things you can easily see turn into an American imperialism that is actually very harmful and it creates regime change um, flippantly, you know, oh. and, and says that, okay, if, if tyranny is evil, then let's get rid of it and put in democracy that can lead to all kinds of horrible things. Yeah. I guess what I was saying is that there's a perpetual problem, like where you can take on the humility and the self-criticism of Niebuhr. And I fully embrace that. I think it's a wonderful thing, but I also think that Niebuhr is fully aware of the problem. I would say the problem of narcissism. And that is that narcissists are very good, right? I'm, I'm using a, you know, a mental health terminology to describe a international relations issue, but um, narcissists, for instance, will perpetually gaslight you. And one of the things they do is that they perpetually try to get you to believe that you're wrong or that the way that you, what you're seeing about reality is wrong. And, and when you, when you have a moral, when you have a moral problem or a principle problem, a, a boundary really with what they're doing, they'll try to get you to believe that there's an ambiguity there. They're not even trying to convince you that you're wrong. Just they're trying to create a, an ambiguity. It's like, eh, it could be wrong or it could be right. I, you don't, you kind of lose the, the footing that you need to stand on. You, you lose a certain fortitude that you need to be able to tell them, no, uh, this is a boundary. This is uh, no. And so I think one of the things that Niebuhr maintains is I think he maintains the ability to tell the tyrants of history uh, while accepting self-criticism. He maintains the ability to say, uh, we're still going to stand in a firm ground here about principles. We're still going to, we're still going to uphold love and justice and hope. And with self-criticism, I fully recognize that Niebuhr embraces that. But what I mean by, what I mean by is like, you could use the Russia United States conflict right now. Uh, the United States, we're, we're saying no, no, like we're, we're not, we're not going to allow you to try to convince us that what you're doing is just a, uh, that there's a moral ambiguity here. There, there really isn't an ambiguity about what you're doing. Um, they want us to believe that. Makes sense? I don't know. I, yeah, I, I think, Zach, what you're getting at is the, the reason why Niebuhr is able 
to call someone a tyrant, for instance, right? It's because he has this sort of moral framework called Christianity to work from, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if we just take the political realist route, my equals right, then all goes, all's game, right? Mm -hmm. That's why Niebuhr, Cornell West always quotes, and it's a, I love this quote, it's from Niebuhr, I don't know exactly anywhere where it's from, but it says, he says that love, justice that is only justice soon deteriorates into something less than justice. Mm -hmm. That's why justice must be rescued by something else, namely love. So you have to have some sort of something that stands outside of these institutions that can critique it. Love is a form of self-critique. It becomes that yeah. in yeah. a way. Good point. Um, hope becomes a way of self-critique. Faith becomes a way of self-critique. Um, yeah. And, and this all comes through in Children of Light, Children of Darkness. I was going to say that that Cornell West quote comes from that, but I know that you're fresh off reading Children of Light, Children of Darkness, Aaron. So I thought yeah. maybe you would have known it if you would have seen it in there. I think that we read um, it again. But then it must be an irony of American history or maybe in something, uh, some article that he wrote around that time. But now, um, now you're mentioning it, it makes, it makes sense. It probably is in there, but my God, that book is, is quite dense. Yeah, I love what you said about contained kind of with the within the virtue of love is its own kind of self-correcting um, contained within the virtue of, of uh, faith and hope. They have their own forms of self-correcting. And this I, I know this. I believe that this really comes out in um, irony of American history. Uh, where he says he, he has this big, great, uh, big, long quote where he says, like, nothing that we can achieve in this lifetime, nothing worth doing you can ever achieve in your lifetime. There must, there, therefore, we must be saved by hope. Um, saying and that on the on the front end is admitting that you're not going to complete the goodness that you're setting out to do. You're always going to fall short. So we are saved by hope because eventually we we have to believe that this will be completed at some point and we are just a part of that process uh so that hope it can hope can be something that steers people maybe we could say it's optimism can steer people into dangerous terrain but we always have to remember the flip side of that hope is realizing that it's not going to be done in your own lifetime you cannot completely complete this action so it has its own kind of uh form of criticism within hope and 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 so Niebuhr is rightly pointing out, he's kind of, um, and this, this was kind of the, uh, what he attempted to do in Ancient Destiny of Man is trying to level, you know, um, all the really bad ideas about human nature and get down to this nub of, of sin and image of God to create kind of, to show, uh, to express the being that is capable of loving and self-correction. Uh, to show the kind of human being who's capable of living by hope, but also self-correction. Uh, and then when he goes to write Children of Light, Children of Darkness, he kind of builds his whole political theory around, around this idea that we can't just be cynics, you know, and we can't just be governing from this position that everything is evil because contained within these things that are good about us are also the things that self-correct. That's a good point. Now, there's also a third element to this, uh, to his Christian realism that's different from just realism, something that he realized while visiting Europe, um, possibly responding to instances like the bombing of Dresden, or he, he was seeing that, oh my gosh, we are killing, many, allied forces are killing many more people than they are killing us. And that's good in a sense, because we're winning the war. But what is this doing to their society? What is this doing to Germany? Um, 
and it takes a, a very unique type of thinker, I, I believe, to have that kind of empathy and maybe someone who's German to be able to empathize that way. But he is seeing kind of the harm that goodness in the world can actually cause. Um, so he, so Niebuhr is realizing how, how easy it is to be evil when trying to act benevolently in the world and that some level of repentance is always needed and maybe yeah. even forgiveness. You well, have and, to anticipate the fact that these things will be needed in order to act good, to act in any good manner in the world. Well, and Sabella has this really powerful quote. I think it's one of the more powerful quotes. He's just summarizing this idea that you're talking about. Um, he says, once we acknowledge that we share the need for forgiveness with even our bitterest enemies, we are free to be more honest about ourselves in general. Yeah. And I was like, man, that is, that is really a, a very cutting application. And I think, I mean, it ties into this aspect, like obviously one of the things we haven't really mentioned even is one of the biggest distinctions between ultra realism and Christian realism is the, the doctrine of sin and how Niebuhr sees this as a fundamental part of humanity. And, but we see it here is like, you know, it, this is where I, this is when I say like the right set of history. When I, when I talk about Niebuhr, like what we're talking about here is like, this is where I see it as an example even though he knows the evil of the Nazis, even though he knows the evil that is taking place, he still stands amongst people who have received horrible, they've had to give up their lives, their friends' lives, they've had their homes bombed, but he still sees a need for repentance. He still sees the evil that is taking place and says that we cannot call this good. You know, and I think that that is, um, it's real. It's a realistic view of the world, but it's also, it's also Christian. It's so needed. Yeah, it's, and, it's and it shows the power yeah. of the Christian worldview to be able to take seriously the sin and evil of the world, but also take seriously our capacity to to be a part of that evil and our dependence on the grace of others. Now, if I may ask you guys this, because I, I think this is important sort of segue into this next sort of topic, right, that, that Sabella kind of paints for us, is the manner in which this view of Christian realism become so attractive to non-Christians and how it gives Niebuhr a huge platform on the world stage of international, domestic and international politics. Whilst you guys are speaking about this though, my mind goes to this big discussion between, um, I've already brought it up before, but the, the Times Magazine owner, Lucy, mm -hmm. Luce is his name. Um, and this big discussion between him and Niebuhr, where he, he tells Niebuhr that, you know, in order to mobilize or to encourage a populace, you have to tap into their idealisms and their romanticisms. You can't be so down, man, always self-critiquing and being so self-absorbed. It's not cool. It's not, mm -hmm. not fun. You need to, in order to motivate your population to, to get them all run up, that to me speaks shows this sort of reason why Niebuhr became so influential. It's not because of necessarily his analysis of sin, because that goes deeper than self-interest, than my equals right. It's the thing that comes out of that, which is love, hope, and faith, mm. which I think is more attractive to his um, audiences than than sin might be what do you guys think about that do you think the primary motivation for liking Niebuhr in the coming era like from the 1930s 40s and 50s 
is his analysis of sin or is this analysis of love? Well, I think oh. I think it actually is in some ways. I mean, I'm, I'm totally generalizing because I don't I haven't done a sociological survey of Niebuhr's influence. But I, I mean, to some degree, uh, Sibella does mention the fact that people liked Niebuhr when he targeted their enemies, but didn't like it when he targeted them. And so like in one sense, they like his view of sin, but they want to use it on the the, the communist the Soviet Union, or they want to use it on, uh, mm. you know, earlier we talked a lot about liberal Christians, right? He want, they want to use his critique of liberal Christians or um, all sorts of different factions and sects that he criticizes, but they don't really like to turn it in on themselves. And I, weirdly enough, that's why I like Niebuhr is to be able to turn that in on myself. So um, I don't know, you know, I don't know, but I, I think it is funny how people like to use it on other people and not themselves. I'll tell you what, man. Obviously, I, we've had this conversation many times on here before, but one of the most attractive things about Niebuhr to us, you know, when we we're just talking is, and Zach has brought it up many times, Niebuhr's ability to force us into repentance and to point out our sins. Um, but as Aaron talks about, that's difficult to promote. Like, n- not a lot of people want to hear that bashing their skulls every moment is how bad that they are. So they need some kind of a framework, some kind of a catalyst that will catch on about Niebuhr. And this is, I mean, this is something that we constantly are returning ourselves back to as a podcast, is how do we popularize this guy? Uh, How do we get more people interested in Reinhold Niebuhr? And going about it as just like sin and and always being critical of, of the masses and being critical of um, of the herd and being critical of the right and the left and, and all these types of things uh, kind of just creates that, that famous picture on time magazine, the man's, you know, man's story is not a success story. And, and that's such a Debbie downer of a view that it's difficult to catch on. So I'm wondering if something like love, faith, his message of love, faith, hope, um, if these things are what kind of catalyze the Niebuhr fever a little bit is, is that these become uh, no matter how he arrives there, these become the central doctrines of the new center, if you will, the vital well, if you, center. If you remember from the reading that Sabella puts forth on the whole conversation that uh, Luce, I, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his surname correctly, um, basis once you have the moral foundation, you're basically good. Then you don't need that self-criticism. Mm-hmm. Once that's in place, and I can only imagine what he means by that is once it is formally institutionalized. And what is so important about this that we should probably mention is that this guy's an American and coming out of World War II after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki after Dresden, mm-hmm. then you go into the Cold War. Now you have a new enemy lining up in the size of the USSR and communism in the East. So basically what we're thinking of is if, if we're this good, we have the moral foundation to repel new enemies. We don't need to be self-critical. We just need to galvanize ourselves and have faith in what we are. Do you think that's a good thing? No. <laughs> no. We, yes, so we no, still no. need always kind of attached to us that, that doctrine of sin. But, it's, but Niebuhr is going to be framing it within these virtues of faith, hope, and love. Mm. Um, I think what I find really interesting is that if, if, if you look at this time as being this bitter struggle between 
these juggernauts, the East and the West, the U.S. and the, and Russia, the part of society that even the West is kind of being pulled into two directions, fascism or communism, you know, type of thing. These are like two extremes that Niebuhr's trying to find this radical center and this vital center and that on the one hand uh, on fascism, it's going to glorify, you know, blood and soil. And these very fundamental organic properties of what makes a human human um, and tribe and uh, culture, these types of things kind of raises personhood and culture and that type of a thing. On the other side, you have this cold machinery of communism um, that kind of flattens the person and creates everybody into kind of a gear in the communist machine type of thing. And instead of kind of going either direction, Niebuhr tries to go back to what makes us human. And what I find most appealing is he doesn't talk about blood and soil and he doesn't talk about um, the cold machinery of human nature, but he talks about kind of what elevates the person. What elevates us human beings is our great capacity for faith, hope, and love. And what animates us um, are, are these drives, but also the accompanying sins that go with those types of things. So he, he has to develop kind of a new language of how we understand politics within this very person-centered politic that's not culture-centered like the fascists, and it's not ideal, ideologically or mechanistically uh, centered like, like the communists, but kind of this firm middle ground based upon the the the, the biblical the judeo-christian whatever you want to call it understanding of what makes a person a person so and i think this is basically what he's going to try to fill he's going to try to find this kind of center this new kind of politic um, within his book children of light children of darkness so let me open it up to you guys what do you guys think he's trying to do here um, and uh, and does he accomplish it? Well, I think it's really kind of neat. It's a, really a unique book in the sense that, um, I mean, Sibella says uh, on page 68, Niebuhr offered what he called a vindication of democracy on the basis of its ability to accommodate the possibilities and limits of human nature. Mm. Um, I was like, and, man, he, and he links it together. Sorry for cutting you off, but he no, links it together with yeah. Nature and Destiny of Man. Nature and Destiny of Man builds this, christian human up like i was just discussing this one that is that is motivated by love and hope and faith and these things but is tainted by sin but then now he has to build a politic that that deals with that human that he just built up and i, I love that that well, he does kind of draw that line and i think this kind of ties into what we were talking about i think it's really uh, very pivotal because you know uh, people we, we need that vindication of democracy about that it that affords people that that it gives us the best shot at the justice and community that we all want right it, or it or a more just and loving community uh, we may not accomplish it through democracy but Niebuhr makes this case that it gives us the best shot at that right it gives us the best it, it the ability to accommodate the possibilities right the the possibilities of those things are best accomplished in democracy and he gives a a powerful account of how that comes together and I think it's so interesting because it must have really resonated at the time. I think one of the things that it's so powerful about this is it must have really resonated with Americans or, or it must have resonated with at least the elites of America. Because, you know, he goes on and he talks about how 
it, they, the State Department, I mean, I think this is one of the most bizarre things to happen in like the last hundred years in American politics and theology. I mean, just for me, I, like, I can't, I think about this all the time. It comes into my head like all the time. Uh, when I'm talking to people, when I'm, you know, thinking about theology, uh, the State Department, or basically like the, the Defense Department, I guess you could say is not the State Department, at the time, whatever it was called, they take this book and they, they want it to be translated into Japanese to then help Japan build a, a democracy, right? To, to influence them. And we can never know how much it influenced them, but it's so compelling to me because of all of America's democracy building projects, right? All these projects that we've endeavored to create democracies in the world and yada, yada. I, th- I feel like Japan is like, in terms of success stories. A model right? citizen. It, it's a model citizen. I mean, we've tried a lot of places in the world to build democracies and done by very, but, and I, I can't help but wonder how Niebuhr's, you know, it's a mystery I'll never probably fully understand, but I can't help but wonder how did children of light and children of darkness and that attitude, right? That vindication of democracy, did it, did it influence Japan? Did it influence the people of Japan? Not that they became uh, like a Christian nation or anything close to that, but just in terms of um, did the ideas, his articulation of the, um, the importance of democracy in creating a just society. Uh, how did that, how did that contribute to their, I would say success in creating a, a, you know, almost like a Western democracy. Yeah. Because going into kind of reestablishing Japan and this new d- democratic type of uh, form, you're, you're drawing it out of, I mean, let's, uh, you know, I, it's blood and soil Japanese, right. Um, a pride of the people, that type of thing. You, they had uh, an, an emperor, you know, who they put on the same plane as the divine. Like this guy was a god to them. You're drawing them out of that and you don't want them to land in a complete destruction of what makes them who they are. Um, you don't want to, them to land in kind of communism, which was obviously big out east where they were. Uh, so how do you how do you navigate this? And what they went with is they're like, all right, we need to translate nature and destiny of man and children of light, children of darkness into Japanese. And I, I think people can read that and they don't understand quite how strange that is. You know, the State Department or the, the Defense Department is reaching out to a theologian yeah, you know, to get his theology book, you know, and have that that be it, because they're obviously longing for some vindication of democracy. That's persuasive, not just that it, it, it they, you know, it's a philosophical account that gives A plus B equals C. No, it's something that like resonates with the souls of these individuals. They're like, we must use this book, this theology book. You know, that would be unheard of today. And especially um, using going all the way back to nature and destiny of man. Like, we want you to understand the way that you see yourselves in the world from this Christian perspective. I mean, a lot of people don't wouldn't like that uh, in secular America if they heard that uh, that, that we yeah. did that type of a thing. But, but you once you see that... what, how Niebuhr constructs it, though, they would agree with I, I think every part of it. Because what you what you don't want them to do is develop some kind of personhood that can get absorbed into its culture, like it was. But you also don't want them to develop a type of personhood that can get flattened and and swallowed up into ideology like in communism so you you really are treading this line where you have to create this these perfect tensions to create personhood that allow for democracy to be possible do you think that they would be immediately receptive to the christian thing or 
on the offsets, uh, on the outsets, the sort of simplified dualism of light and darkness. Because coming from Japan and it, and a society who is very insulated by their own culture and by this sort of familial uh, loyalty, right? With Do you guys really think by seeing themselves as not children's of darkness, would they take that quite well? Well, I think that that uh, kind of the main thrust of the book is most people are children of light. Most people want to find themselves and doing what's right for their brothers and sisters. Uh, and yeah. uh, we find our end and how and 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 one another, you know, is what is kind of one of the central uh, points that, that Niebuhr is yeah. making. Most people want this. Um, the, the children of darkness are those people who just, maybe we could put Putin in that camp, uh, just this cold, hard cynicism yes. and, and, and doesn't find his completion in another human being. You know, uh, but uh, so I think going into it, they might find uh, a certain eagerness there that sure. uh, and and they can see themselves in these pages yes and 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 to get to Niebuhr's, part of Niebuhr's argument is he would even say that the nazis were to a degree children of light everybody has a part of it in them but they were they were too myopic in their understanding of who their brother was of who their brother and sister are you know they were only looking out for their own interests and not in the interests of of greater humanity you know um, and that was a part of of the sin. So so yeah, I I would say that at first to start anything in Japan, for those who are maybe the children of darkness, there needs to be a time of yeah. of recognition and repentance of that type yeah. of view. And to everybody else who maybe means well, but they're just uh, locating it in the wrong way, th- then this book is going to help them steer that in a better direction. I guess part of my reason for asking that was was just just recognizing the the large amount of anti-Japanese racism in America at the time as well. Even the State Department. I mean, the the way the government displayed Japanese people on war propaganda posters throughout the United States was so horrific. The way we interned them in camps as well in America is, is awful. So uh, partially, we, uh, we, we are speaking of this as a great feat that we're sending these newly translated books of Niebuhr over, which I think you're right, guys. I think like, you know, once we can all recognize that, you know, we, we're, we were part of this empire that was really fascist and was really bad and authoritarian, uh, but, you know, we've all have a bit of bad in us, but we have the potential to do really good as individuals and whatnot and as communities. But you know, I wonder how even Americans thought of the what one of the motivations for sending those pamphlets over. Was it out of the benevolence of our own hearts to help them become a democracy? Maybe. Or maybe it was because of underwriting racial tensions. Maybe? Well, it's it's difficult to it's difficult to understand the motives of what's underpinning why they would give these books to Japan. Um, and have parliamentarians, uh, new, newly minted parliamentarians, reading these these books, but we can say that what we gave them in Niebuhr actually is a critique of ourselves as well. 
So within these pages of Children of Light, Children of Darkness, by, by giving them this new understanding of democracy, now they have the ability to critique what we did in our internment yeah. camps, you know, within the, the order of democracy, within yeah. the patterns of democracy. <clears throat> I, you can look at our mistakes and you can better yourself from this. And you could also look at our standing armies and now our, you know, these, these Cold War politics now cool. and have that effect, influence the way that you understand your own military. And, and I would add, maybe, maybe you know, I, we're just speculating here, but maybe the people that sent it didn't quite fully understand what they were sending, you know? Um, and, and I wonder... Maybe some of them, but I, maybe some of them knew exactly what they were sending them. I, 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 would put it, I would put it this way. It's not your standard. It's definitely not your, as a, as a text goes, it's not your standard government propaganda literature. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it like, like, like uh, Cliff is saying, it cuts both ways, right? They would, anybody that would read that would come away understanding the ambiguities of power and understanding that, that the U.S. is not necessarily innocent in all this. You know what I mean? Like, um, and just by Japan trying to be good now doesn't release them from the perils of evil. Like yeah. they can still become evil even within this. I, again, I think the reason I'm bringing this up is just, it might just be as a maybe neighbor the spirit of Niebuhr speaking through me, I feel it. Oh God. Um, it's, it's just that <laughs> the, the sort of temptation or the, the sort of falling off the next ledge to, into self-deception is always just right around the corner. No matter what you're doing, every single action you can take, you can be deceived by That's yourself right. and just a matter of moments noticed. But you're giving them a book that says that. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. That's what I mean. Like if you're, if you're giving them a book to say that, it's fine. But yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And it kind of gets into that territory we were discussing earlier where democracy can be hardened and exalted um, into a new form of, of colonializing a people or something like that. But like there are certain ways that you could look at colonialism economically, I guess. And you could say that for, well, for a long time, Japan was kind of a colony of, of America and, you know, or the West or something like that. But at the end of the day, you get into this catch 22 of, I mean, we believe in democracy so we want it to proliferate where the opportunity is there. Okay, now the post-Japan world, yeah, of course we want them to become democratized because democracies are good in a lot of ways. Democracy have self-corrective abilities. Um, democracies uh, don't go to war with each other. I mean, if you look at history, democracies don't go to war with each other because there's already a ready-made vehicle for diplomacy you know, um, for good or for bad, you know, that, that's already there. So you want them to have that, but you also don't want that to be you pressing too firmly on them to force them to do something different. Um, and I maybe we should devote an entire podcast to the difference between the Iraq war and, uh, and Japan. Like, what is the difference between um, what, we, what we did in either place? And is there a difference? I don't know. So let, let's get to the, the namesake of the book. Anybody want to explain this parable from the Gospel of Luke, where we get these terms of children of light and children of darkness? Well, it's just the parable of uh, this shrewd but evil business manager, right? He's, he's going to get fired. He's going to get canned. And then basically he decides that once he's getting it fired, he's not going to have, he, he's not going to have anything because he, his skills are only in managing money. And so he very shrewdly decides, well, I'm going to forgive a bunch of debts that I have a bunch of friends out there. 
And at the end of the parable, Jesus kind of says, hey, look how wise, you know, these worldly people are, because this obviously is a negative example, right? This, this, this business manager is doing something that's not actually good, but he's very wise, very, very uh, shrewd, I guess you could say, in approaching his soon to be unemployment, which would have been detrimental in that day and age. Um, And so what Deeper draws from this is we need the children of light to learn from these children of darkness. Um, we, we, children of light are too naive when it comes to, uh, the selfishness of others. Um, they'll get trampled on, they'll miss, uh, predict things. They'll misunderstand kind of like the Neville Chamberlain type of thing. Uh, that will, will rely upon one another's good graces to do, you know, to achieve anything in this world, but we need to be aware of the self-interest of other people as well. And that needs to be incorporated into our identity somehow. I know, I remember this is one of the things that sticks out clearly, clearest to me um, at, at the beginning of Children of Light, Children of Darkness. Niebuhr does bring in kind of the, another parable of be, was, was it shrewd as serpents and, and as innocent as doves, um, where Jesus says that. So let's be as wise as serpents you know, let's be as wise as the bad people, but let's be as good as the good people or as innocent as the good people. And being able to kind of maintain this dialectic within a democracy is really important where it's, it's kind of like we should trust each other, but verify, I think is the old Reagan slogan. You know, we, we should have good faith with one another, but we need to be prepared for us acting within our own self-interest as well. Um, and so we should have democracy and that allows the people to speak, allows the, and that's a good thing, but we should also have checks on ourselves and not because we're, we're just waiting for these people to screw up and to, to, to have malevolent uh, intentions. So it's kind of got to be this balance between both worlds. And that's how we, that's how we create democracy. And so democracy at the end of the day is what, what how he argues it is a man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible. Man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. So it's good that we all have a say in how we're building this thing, but democracy is also good because it will place limitations on how much we get to say it and, and how much say we have and, and what we are creating. Okay, good. So the nuclear bomb. Let's go to the nukes, man. Yeah. Any surprises here? Yeah, you know, I, I I need to look into this more because the first time I read this, I thought of um, Niebuhr's assessment of the nukes as very good in that he, he said there's some ambiguity here, right? Like we can't just be, we can't be of the naivete that would say we need to just get rid of all of our nukes and we it should only be civilians. And like in that, it's like, oh my gosh, like that, that could create some serious problems. But also being fully aware that of the just sheer destructive and terrible power of these nuclear weapons at the same time and how they are, there's this tremendous irony in, in controlling this means of destruction. Yeah, good. What, what, what were your thoughts, Aaron? Were you surprised by anything in this? Um, yes, I, I mean, I think um, maybe kind of going a bit off what Zach says, the way Sabella illustrates neighbor's approach to this you know from the outset i mean from us right if you were to hear about the horrors of nuclear warfare of how america has used it on two japanese cities about hydrogen bombs 
you might just be like these things are just evil things to ever use but Niebuhr he says was the as um Lovin says that uh Niebuhr is one of the first people to understand deterrence yeah so 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 Bella brings up two further points say well you know on on the morality point yeah Niebuhr's like man this stuff this stuff pretty bad you know you could what we've done with these things are awful mm-hmm. but at the same time Sabella highlights the point that but Niebuhr understands the political situation we're in so we have to get over our sentimental feelings over not liking this and we just have to deal with the reality that we're in this now and we have to navigate it from here on out I'll tell you I was a little surprised that Niebuhr as Sabella points out, Niebuhr seems to suggest that we shouldn't have bombed them at all. And that, you know, that going through with a nuclear test in full view of Japanese leaders might have convinced them to surrender. And I got to think, oh my gosh, like what, like what if they, you know, out in the deserts, out in uh, the deserts of New Mexico, they did th- this uh, this first nuclear test and took video of it or something like that, and just just you know mailed in to Japan a video of this bomb. Like, what, would that have done anything? Or what, if if they did it off of, on one of the islands close to Japan or something like that, would that have caused them to surrender? I think it's an interesting thought experiment. I don't know. I mean, yeah. You get I, I mean, a lot of different sides on on the politics of the time. Were they ready to surrender? We're already firebombing the hell out of Japan before that. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people, c- citizens. We're already killing uh, yeah, yeah. with firebombs uh, in in Tokyo, all over the place. I mean, and if if you guys haven't seen it yet. We should seriously, maybe we could do this for an episode. We should watch this documentary called The Fog of War. And it has Robert McNamara on there. And Robert McNamara was working for, you know, uh, I believe in intelligence at the time. And uh, and he went through all the firebombing that we did on mainland Japan, just yeah. toasting entire cities and made the, the nukes look like nothing compared yeah, exactly. to what we'd already done. Uh, but this ability to push a button and detonate a nuke that could wipe out a city just like that, Niebuhr seemed, and maybe Niebuhr doesn't have the full understanding of what's already happened in Japan. But uh, but my thinking is, you know, if they were going to surrender, it seemed like you know they had every opportunity to do it, but they needed to know that we could just push a button and just detonate and, and kill an entire city just like that. I mean, and and maybe a vi- like a video that would be ridiculous yeah, I mean, like I they mean, don't even have vhs uh, yeah, i don't I mean, even know how they would get a video in there but yeah they i think uh, Niebuhr fundamentally misunderstands i mean on one says i think he's co- correct like i think it would have been great to be able to test a nuclear bomb and not have and i don't know about the u.s's motives in in, in terms of it, there may have been people that just wanted to see what would happen you know what i mean they, they you know and so there's some really sinister dark kind of apathetic forces which might have been behind just like yeah let's, let's see what it does to people you yeah, know yeah. Um, which could, that's very disturbing, but you know, there's also this sense of like, you drop the bomb off the coast to show them its power and it doesn't go off. Um, which is uh, actually would have been a, I think a acceptable failure, you know, it would be like, Oh, okay, well at least we tried. 
Um, you know, because at the same time, I mean, we we bombed Tokyo, the worst firebombing of World War II. Yeah. Um, it, it came in Tokyo. Uh, I think it's April of 1942. And they say like over almost 100,000 people died. I mean, yeah. that is an extraordinary amount of people that and were it wasn't killed. just Tokyo. It was all their major cities. We've already firebombed them all. Yeah, but I'm saying the worst of the worst was there in Japan. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe we should talk about the fact that maybe we should have showed them our capacity to firebomb before we firebombed, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, they got it. I mean, they night after night, they got those bombers in there and they and and they dropped these firebombs and killed so many people night after night after night after night. These paper cities, these wooden cities all burning right up. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, but but Niebuhr seems to be saying, and like I said, I don't know how much he knows about the situation with the firebombing and stuff like that. But he seems to be saying, oh, just you know, drop one off the coast. It's also important to realize at the end of the Manhattan Project, they only had three bombs. They had only developed enough uranium or uh, was it uranium at the time? Plutonium, maybe. I don't know. One of those uh, that they created the nukes out of. I think one was uranium, one was plutonium, whatever. They'd only enriched enough material to create three bombs. One, they tested. And the two, they were going to deploy um, over Japan. And so you waste another one maybe off the coast of Japan or something like that. Then you only have one more. And maybe they're thinking, okay, we we have to be able to back it up if, if we're going to do, be doing it again, like you're going to want that second one. I don't know. I don't know what the thinking was at the time, but Niebuhr seems to be at least empathizing with the people who are saying it was unnecessary. But then at the same time, this is classic Niebuhr speaking out both sides of his mouth. At the same time, he's like, but this was a magnificent instance of deterrence. Um, and he starts articulating what Robin Levin says. And I think even um, not Morgenthau, George Kennan says is the er earliest articulation of nuclear deterrence was by Niebuhr. Um, the, and, and by extension, mutually assured destruction. That quote, quote, that you have to be prepared to threaten to use these weapons in order to ensure they will not be used. So both sides when once we get into the to the fact that you know russia's going to get an atom bomb they're going to get the bomb you have to be able to show we are willing to use this and what hiroshima and nagasaki did is it showed truman was willing to do it you can bet your butt that eisenhower is willing to do it you can bet your butt that kennedy is willing to do it um we already have this blood on our hands we're willing to do it again for the greater good. And once you set that up, that real deterrent, then you can guarantee, close to guarantee, it won't be used because you have two willing parties ready to drop that bomb. If you have either one of them soften up their position, if either one of them are seen to be weak and that they won't go through with dropping the bomb or something like that, then the other side will take that as their advantage. You know, one of the fundamental problems of this view though that i foresee is that it is a massive experiment which we've so far um lucked out with yeah lucked out with and you know you could call it deterrent or just um postponed, so postponed apocalypse you know yeah. what i mean like like in one sense it's like oh yeah it's a deterrent and all this other stuff but it's also like we're now in a situation where it's like could the apocalypse happen tomorrow yeah yeah it could because it really could. we could just bring it upon ourselves 
But, um, but the fact that it's worked for so long is is a testament to how hard and true the basis for the doctrine exists. And that is that we are self-interested. You are not going to use that bomb unless you want to get bombed. We'll see. <laughs> well, with, with Niebuhr as well, um, the thing that Sabella brings up, I think we're kind of scratching the surface here, is that in his sort of direct opposition with the bombs, he didn't really have a really good ethical basis for it. He didn't really provide one. And so, like, the question he asks, the, he's like, why, you guys should have a bit more imagination, which is when he provides it. Well, you could have just dropped the bomb off the coast. Right. Scared the living hell of these guys. But then Sabella asks, well, where was your imagination at, Eber? You didn't provide an ethical critique. Yeah. Why do you guys think that is? Like, surely, surely if, 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 if you could, I mean, he, I don't know if he did or not. I don't think he did. He didn't provide a big ethical critique for the multiple bombings and night raids and stuff on the Japanese mainland. Um, why wouldn't he provide one for this? Well, I think it's because, I think probably because nuclear weapons became a, I mean, I'm totally speculating, but it's funny how like, it's not funny, it's terrible, but the, the, the idea that nobody bats an eye at the firebombs, but the nuclear bomb comes along and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, we were also killing hundreds of thousands of people at a time. Like the nuclear well, bomb. The is difference terrible, is obviously the fire bombs take massive mobilization, yeah. but a nuke can be dropped with a button. It's too but, much I mean, power. That's what he's afraid of. Yeah. And this is pure speculation I'm, I'm getting at. And I mean, I don't know about this either. Do you think that Niebuhr may have been sort of glad? I think so. Happened? I think because, so. And that's yeah. why I that's why Sabella kind of set it up like, OK, we need to use our imagination. Maybe they could have dropped it off the coast to test or something like that. I suggested they send in a VHS before realizing they probably didn't have VHS at the time. But whatever. Uh, but then on the other side, he yeah. he went down this deterrent route. But he's seriously kind of secretly glad that they did it because this is going to pack a punch later when we're dealing with Russia. Yeah. Which is probably why, yeah, exactly. That was my kind of when I read it. I was like, well, I wonder, you know, for someone, Sabella so already said this point that when the time calls for it in terms of the Israel conflict, neighbor will be there with a definitive response. Mm. The nuclear weapon is a pretty big damn issue. And he doesn't have an ethical critique that must be on purpose. Yeah. Well, he, he's going to write a lot about the nukes. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, though, is in one kind of small article I think he did in The Atlantic, he gave the argument that between nukes and television, the two great achievements, technological achievements of the 20th century, he, thought, sure. that the, he thought the television was more uh, destructive. Wow. He thought that nukes, you, you, you got, okay, we, we have the doctrine of mutually assured destruction. Um, he was a believer in this. And this act of deterrence, this can stave us off for a while, even though it does change the way that we talk and the, the way that we understand even theology and philosophy and political philosophy. This is going to have an effect on people who are, can all of a sudden imagine the end of the world. You know, that's going to be a very different um uh, world that they're all living in but tv every single day 
we are bombarded with things that we want and of an entire catalog of, of, you know, consumerism um, that we can pick from and these lifestyles that are exemplified and, and, you know, TV changes the game for him, but that's for another podcast. But I like, I will say that, you know, maybe he didn't articulate a full ethical critique against nuclear war. I think he just took it as this is a new reality we're living in. How do we operate in this reality now? Yeah. But let's move on to say something. Um, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but uh, let's say something about the state of Israel. We don't know. So he uh, Niebuhr arrived uninvited to the Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry meeting um, in, in D.C. It was at 47. So 1947. 46. January 46. Yeah. 46. OK. It, it was appointed to consider whether to permit immigration of 100,000 Jewish persons to Palestine. We don't know exactly how he argued this. I don't know if the tape recorders were running. I don't know. Maybe it exists somewhere. Maybe it's in the library. Yeah, Congress. Really I have great, no idea. Everything you find. But we, yeah, we, maybe someone has some notes on it somewhere in a journal or something. But we, but we know what he argued for. We don't know how he articulated the argument, but, but we know what he argued for, and that is the state of Israel. He wanted the state of Israel. He was, the term is so loaded today, but they would consider him a Zionist then. Do you guys, let me ask you guys, do you guys have any thoughts on how Niebuhr Mar might have argued this position of the state of Israel? Because it's obviously so, it's just riddled with so many issues that you know kept Niebuhr awake at night. That had to have. I mean, there are so many sides to this issue of whether to clear out an entire people who had been living there for, you know, over a thousand years, I think 1500 years, suddenly clear them out and throw the, throw the Jewish people on their backs um, and set up this state there. All of a sudden, this is, this is something we haven't seen before. It's not straight colonialism where you have a colonial power in charge. Um, you have basically an, a, an oppressed people now in charge of another oppressed people who are now oppressed under the the, the recently oppressed. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know. What do you what do you guys think about this whole situation? And how do you think Niebuhr might have articulated his way through this? Well, um, well, Sabella gives us a sort of clue, and that's through the commentary that his that Niebuhr's daughter Elizabeth Sifton mm -hmm. kind of says. So she says that her father saw the state of Israel as a, you know, partial solution to the problem. And I think the way it is implied at least is that, you know, Niebuhr looked at anti-Semitism all over the world and including the United States. And even after, uh, before and after the war, anti-Semitism was a huge issue. Mm -hmm. We didn't allow the nine, nearly 9,000 or 900, is it 900 Jews to come over on ships mm -hmm. prior to what prior to Nazi takeover? They died. They're probably, all, they're probably all dead. Yeah. I think you see yeah, a lot of them did die or nearly a quarter or a bit more. Um, there's rising anti-Semitism and displaced Jews in, uh, in, in camps still all across Europe. So what's the answer? You can't make countries all over the world do it so you probably need to have some sort of place where these people can go it's important to see at this time sabella makes the point of saying 
the Niebuhr was not only the Jewish people's greatest defender in the United States at the time, he was the sole defender in a lot of ways. He was the only guy really sticking his neck out because even if people aren't anti-Semitic, they at least they don't care. Yeah. You know, like what allegiance do we have to these people? You know? Yeah. And he, he had a, he had a relationship with the Jewish community. I mean, that, that was probably uncommon or I, I understand as being very uncommon. I mean, at the time, you know, and people don't realize just how anti-Semitic the United States was. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine, I mean, just the, I mean, just the name of this thing. I don't know if the name of it is intentionally weird, but the Anglo-American committee of inquiry, <laughs> That's like, really funny. What, what is this? You know, like this is a government or sanctioned event and it sounds quite uh, and they're in charge right. of the immigrants and they're yeah, it's quite it's in the name anglo yeah. well and i think it's so interesting he shows up to this he, he's unannounced right so he's already kind of putting himself out there and the only reason he gets to speak and i don't know if this is coordinated or, or what happened was because his boss at union just decides to um back out of speaking and so then all of a sudden Niebuhr gets, gets to go up there and speak i mean he's kind of put himself out there a little bit you know like he wasn't invited he is um and obviously the Jewish people responded very positively. They, uh, the, the rabbi Stephen Wise, you know, said it was the finest presentation of Zionist case that I've ever heard. It's like, oh my gosh, like this is a, you know, a Christian preacher and he's here advocating for the Jews. And, I'm trying to think. It's very uplifting to them after a very yeah. disturbing, probably the most, one of the most disturbing events in human history. And here, you know, he's, he's advocating on their behalf. You know, and I think that some people were motivated to help the Jews go to Israel um, by anti-Semitism. They just didn't want them in their country. So they were like, get out of here. But I don't think that's what's behind Niebuhr's desire here. I think he genuinely was trying to come up with a solution. Um, I think he had, I, I wonder how he would look nowadays though at the just absolute controversy that has formed around Israel. Oh, um, I think I, I would have, I would love to hear Niebuhr's take on because, it today. And yeah. uh, we might find it and. and what Cornell West says about it. And I, I want to come back here in a second, but Some, just think for a second, Zach, the point, the first point that you bring out about the Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry, think about, okay, say they did something at, you know, Martin Luther King does his thing and all of a sudden we have the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and But the Civil Rights Act can't go forward unless it's decided upon by something we're going to call the White American Committee of Inquiry. Yeah. That's about ridiculous. how ridiculous this is, yeah. right? Uh, but yeah, but Niebuhr goes and and uh, and sticks up for the Jewish people. And but you bring up a question now: what? How would he view it today? Because obviously, his insistence on having it in the beginning was maybe different from the way that the kind of Niebuhr that we'll get in managing the situation. Well, one of the ironies of this is what you know. Two of the people who introduced me to Niebuhr were Cornell West and Chris Hedges. But I would say that there are, you know, among advocates, I mean, Hedges embedded himself in Gaza. You know what I mean? Uh, of, of the people who've advocated against, I mean, who are very outspoken critics of uh, the way the Israel, uh, the, the issues and controversies of Israel are also the people that introduced me to Niebuhr. So it's really ironic because I, I think that they didn't quite, um, I, I have no idea how Niebuhr would respond today because I think. Um, I don't quite understand his motivation for Zionism outside of wanting to support the Jewish community. Um, I don't understand. And it's just the why... fact that they were, as Cornel West puts it, they were coming out of the burning buildings of Europe and what, like they need a place to go. 
you yeah. know, or they're yeah. going and their anti-Semitism is so global. Yeah. And um, they like need the, their own the, place to protect themselves. Well, it's not like the places they left in Germany all of a sudden just repented and recanted of their. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I, I know people uh, who go to my church or formerly went to my church. They've since passed on. But, you know, they came from they came from Germany during World War Two. Like I've met them and talked to them and they still don't want to talk about like living there and growing up there. And what, what happened? You know what I mean? Like they, they still look very positively and glowingly on Germany and, you know, modern Germany is not a terrible place or anything. It's just, I'm just saying like, imagine being there right after the war, right? That these people were not just dropping this anti-Semitism. They're not just like moving on from it. You know, they, they were still big advocates yeah. and um, not good advocates, but yeah. I get the impression that it was an impossible situation. I, I do think that, I don't know how pronounced this was, but I, I think that there is an interesting connection between ethnicity and na- nationalism uh, that was s- still there enough for P- for Niebuhr to be okay with this. Um, because you would think that Niebuhr, okay, if, he, if Niebuhr had his way, he would go in there and we would, we would say, okay, look, the biggest hurdle here is we have to allow the Jewish people back in here. Um, they get some of their own land or whatever. Uh, but from here, though, we have to form some kind of a neutral democracy. But he was just like, no, the Jews are Jews should be in charge. You know, imagine like taking all the German people for out, you know, France, like we re- redrew the lines between the West and Russia. Uh, and so Germany's no more. OK, well, let's just give Germany this plot of land in northern Africa and kick some people out. This is your land now. Do with yeah, it what you it was want. A, ironically, it was built well, on Germany. This whole idea comes from just a an inherent like I almost kind of wonder if they would have looked on that area as I would say you might say wild. Right. As kind of like, oh, un uncivilized you know and so like we're just going to put these people here because they can then out of this uncivilized area and that in that in itself that view in itself is inherently problematic yeah you know um i i have to assume after reading so much niebuhr i have to assume that this is the worst best thing to him yeah um or this is this is the best terrible thing to him that it's not a good situation uh, and it needs to be working itself toward a more neutral, not so ethnically centered and not so religiously centered um, state, you know, but uh, but I don't know. So the way that he would manage it today, I had mentioned Cornell West earlier. I've, I've seen Cornell West debate Bill O'Reilly on this issue before. And I remember Cornell West making the argument that, you know, they're both, you know, Israeli, Palestinian, they're both children of God. Um, they we need to view them, you know, as equals um in in this world and we need and they need to find some way of becoming a pluralist society you know because this tying ethnicity to nationalism is still the the root cause of their problems there you know but but i'm not sure if the kind of islam that is operating there and the kind of Judaism that is operating there are capable of kind of detaching themselves and creating that kind of pluralistic society, which makes kind of the two-state solution, like the two-state solution, isn't that kind of recapitulating the same old problem? Yeah. In a way. Well, I think this could this could make a quite interesting uh, future po- uh, episode to yeah. dive into kind of what Niebuhr's rationale was, because I'm sure he wrote something on it. 
he did write something on it. I just, uh, it's not fresh in my mind. It's been a long time yeah. since I read it, but, but I think it was an interesting exercise to at least try to imagine kind of the problems. And I think that you're right, Zach. I think it's the anti-Semitism is just so global at the time. Where are you going to put these people? It's, it's not, Niebuhr's not coming in from kind of the dispensational premillennialist view that, okay, they need to get started on rebuilding the temple. You know, or something like that. Yeah, like, well, and I wonder, I wonder how that might have them, though. You know what I mean? Um, I doubt it. I doubt I, it. I doubt it, but... You know, Niebuhr's you not know. operating off of that crap. Yeah, I'd love to explore that more and kind of figure out. But I do think that he does see some kind of kinship with Jewish people, obviously. Um, I know that post-stroke, there's a great um, eulogy that I think Ursula wrote. Yeah, Ursula wrote a eulogy for um, Rabbi Abraham Heschel. And she talked about how, and Heschel taught at Jewish Theological Seminary of America, which is right across the street from Union. So, uh, and it's now, they're both affiliated. Um, they're affiliated seminaries. So when I was going there, I could take classes there. Actually, I went to their library a few times. But so Heschel is over there and neighbors at Union and they used to go uh, for walks together every night. Yeah. Uh, and just talk, you know, and I think that Niebuhr had that kind of brotherly love, you know, for his uh, for his Jewish. Um, I, he wouldn't obviously call them co-religionists, but he he saw a kinship that was there between Christianity, but not so extreme as to, you know, like a dispensationalist would. Yeah. So anyway, uh, well, um, any, any last thought? I, we're going to skip the Barton Niebuhr part partially because we've we've kind of talked about Barton Niebuhr a lot on here, but there is going to be, I believe in 1948, the first world council of churches, and there's going to be kind of a showdown, kind of a, you know, a tit for tat going there um, between the Bartians and Niebuhr. But I, we've kind of agreed before we went on today that we'd save the Barton Niebuhr stuff for a whole series that maybe we're going to, we're going to do next winter um, after the elections and we're going to bring in Bartian. So if you're a Bartian out there and you just, I don't know, you like torturing yourself, listening to stuff about Niebuhr. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on, on maybe where we can go with that. We have some uh, Bartian friends that we're, we're going to be bringing on the show and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, we're going to hold off on that for a while. I think any last, for, any last words, fellas? Well, I think for a final thought, anybody that's looking to examine how faith can be relevant in the modern world, or I guess we're the post-secular world now, but you know, within that framework, Anyways, yeah, I, I think that this this chapter, you know, it's just is really important for trying to understand. Here we have a theologian who is commenting in a way that is quite relevant to his contemporaries, right? You have secularists, you have uh, political figures, you have all these different individuals, and they're listening to Niebuhr, and he's talking to them about sin, right? The one of the most like primeval views, primeval understandings of human uh, evil, and it's quite relevant to how they form their politics. And I think that if we have any desire or any hope of doing that, I think we have to reflect on this because, because I think Niebuhr does it in such a effective way and not everything he did was good, but I still think that his ability to influence and his ability to speak to the heart of people in a way that caused them to change their behaviors and to shape their politics and to shape, and you know, they sent his books off to, you know, countries they had just recently conquered. Um, yeah, uh, Roosevelt I, appoints him to the Council on Foreign Relations. Yes, yeah, I, I think if you want to be a relevant preacher or re a, a Christian who's trying to uh, make the world a better place, 
I, I and especially with, in, in regards to politics, I think you got to read this because I mean, just think about it. We have a we have a we have a we have a a theologian who has been appointed by the president to help with foreign policy. I mean, that's like unheard of today. Um, yeah, but- I, I think I shared on the Twitter machine, the Twitter machine uh, a couple of weeks ago, Niebuhr's identification card for the War Department. I mean, it, it's a weird and kind of shocking thing to see a theologian, you know, messing around in D.C., walking around the Pentagon and, you know, you know, meeting with, you know, uh, corresponding with with presidents or uh, or whatever. I mean, it's it is a it's a it's a weird thing. But if you want your Christianity to be relevant, no matter what form that takes, you got to deal with Niebuhr, whether you agree with him or disagree with him. He is putting forward the categories here. Take it or leave it. I think if your interest off the bat is to make Christian relevant, this is some sort of indication that you want to use your religious identity to do some good in the world. Now, I mean, there obviously is this big debate on whether the goal of Christianity is to be relevant or to be the church. And that's the big debate between Bart and mm-hmm. Niebuhr, subsequently down to Stanley Haberwas and other theologians, not what we're getting to now. The thing we can get trapped into very much so is this, that Niebuhr's major contribution is just his reformulating the uh, realist approach to politics with just, tacking on the name sin to self-interest but Niebuhr does offer us a bigger vocabulary for love and justice and hope and as Cornel West says you know um, love is a form of dying yet in our day and age these qualities love hope they're they're tied to really things that aren't very loving aren't very hopeful or just more self-interest multiplied on self-interest so if your interest isn't neighbor to make it relevant but also to critique your own versions of yourself then obviously read these books yeah and i think i would just add to that like there's a sense there's a sense of hopelessness that often people fall into a sense of nihilism uh, uh where like they their their personal faith is so separated from their politics mm-hmm. and i think that like like aaron's saying like don't give into that despair because I think Niebuhr is a way to, he's a path forward. You know, even if he didn't get it all right, I think he's a path forward to uh, don't give up that endeavor, I guess. Yeah. And put it this way, where would Hauerwas be if he hadn't started critiquing Niebuhr? I mean, his dissertation was on, was on Niebuhr. I think his dissertation was turned into with, with a grain of the universe. Um, and that's about a third of it is on Niebuhr and uh and william james so even even it when even if you were to disagree with niebuhr you still got to deal with them yeah and it doesn't make anything different i mean in resident aliens which i'm sure we'll cover very very soon in our podcast i think in chapter two or three tower was says we don't want to retreat from the world as a confessing church and within our enclave we we are we can, we can be part of certain organizations to defend the poor the widow so it's like you're taking the strict 
boundary lines that Bart has dr- written up. And just like, yeah, that's great. And we want to be that way. But uh, yeah, we still like, you need to be part of these little it's things. It's really just kind of 50 shades of Niebuhr a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's like. You're making some concessions when you say that. Yeah. No, yeah, of course. But yeah, Niebuhr, Niebuhr's a way of criticizing domestic and interna- international policy. But it's he's just a way to come back to ourselves and ask the question of how we are engaging in democracy every day and mm. engaging democratically with ourselves. We ourselves need to go in and and look at our own motivation. And I would even say democracy and a stable country has provided for people like Hauerwas and Yoder and some of these people who are adversaries in a lot of ways to Niebuhr um, a platform. Um, I think that they have an interest in maintaining democracy. I think that they have an interest in fending off uh, Trumpism and authoritarianism. And the goal is not to sweep them all up into a, into a theocracy that's incomprehensible to the world, but something that can arrive at some kind of a democratic vision for society that can accept it, that can have a pluralist outlook and uh, that can create the conditions within which we can be more loving and more faithful and more hopeful. And that's what democracy gives us. One, one more thing I want to add to that. Sorry, guys. I think Hauerwas even calls democracy this th- thing that only multiplies our desires. I think he calls it the tyranny of desire, right? Yeah, well, I've heard him say And that democracy is all we're after is just pursuing our individual rights. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that some other time. I think I heard him say once, uh, democracy is uh, we are is the, the fact that we are now all free to be our own tyrants or something like that. Um, yeah, exactly. Which is, I think it's, it might just be a too simplistic f- formulation of what democracy functions. It is. It really is. And it doesn't take into account the ambiguity of democracy. It's not evil. It's not a pure evil. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, anyway, democracy uh, talk today is just is this self-regulating fashion. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Niebuhr talks about it. Love, hope, faith, these function as, as religious and democratic principles to regulate ourselves within a wider community of differences. That's right. That's right. And we shall leave it there. And maybe one of these days we'll bring in Howard, not Howard Ross himself, but kind of a Howard Rossian view, maybe from some folks we know, and, and read um, children of light children of darkness with them to try to find that maybe touchstone or that maybe those places where we might agree on some things about society and democracy but anyway that about does it for the this week's episode of the love thy neighbor pod podcast we want to thank you all so much for listening um, we really appreciate you guys tuning in and supporting us and leaving us comments and messaging me some of you guys have been messaging me um to have some private talks about some of these things and i love it so keep keep on doing it uh make sure you like and subscribe if you're enjoying it make sure you write us a review um if you haven't yet and make sure to follow us on twitter at love thy neighbor for all the updates news and and maybe we'll throw some neighbor quotes and other goodies at you to keep you going throughout the week on there thanks for listening everybody and stay safe out there